Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. How you doing, everyone? I'm Russ Salzberg, and I want you all to listen up and get a load of this. What the hell is happening to New York City? It's bad enough that our cops are terribly underpaid, but now they're being disrespected to the point where they can't even do their jobs. That and senseless gunfire destroys our neighborhood celebrations. I'll talk about all of this with Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, a man who doesn't just talk the talk, he also walks the walk. So like I said, listen up, because you're really going to want to get a load of this. Like I just said, you know, Eric Adams doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. That's one of the reasons why I asked him to be on here, because... I don't know what the hell is going on with New York City. He is Brooklyn proud. He is from Brooklyn. He is Brooklyn's borough president. And I'm pleased to welcome you now. Eric, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Russ, thank you. And, you know, you're like a legend, man. (laughs) Not not, not you being a wise guy, because that means I'm old. (laughs) All right? (laughs) But uh, I I thank you for that. Um, You know, Eric... I spoke to you almost a month ago where you had that terrific um, editorial in, in the Daily News about cops being underpaid. And that's how, you know, we got to talking. And then when I wanted you to come on, um, w- when I set this up for you to come on my podcast, you know, I wanted to just talk about, well, not just talk about it, but, you know, the cops and, and the disrespect and what. And then you have this horrific thing that happened uh, in Brownsville. And really, you heard me say, like, what the hell is going on with our city? And you're the Brooklyn Borough President, so I ask you, what the hell is going on with our city? And it's so true, and I think that question is really a profound and insightful one, and I'm sure that you, uh, like myself, can recall uh, what the city was like. And I'm very clear, I don't want my son... Uh, growing up in the city that I grew up in. Uh, we uh, identified ourselves by uh, those things called Benzy boxes. Many people forgot we used to carry the radios out of our car. We surrendered to crime and disorder. Uh, we used to have this item called the club. This wasn't a prestigious place that you were a member of. This was something you put on your steering wheel because you knew someone was going to attempt to steal your car. Every car had a sign that said no radio, no radio. You got tired of the glass being destroyed as people went in to steal your property. Uh, this was the city that we were in. Too many people that are policymakers don't know or were not part of the city that we fixed. 
I couldn't agree with you more. You know, li- listen, I live with my family in New Jersey. Uh, but I am, when I say Brooklyn proud, I'll go, I'm probably in, in Brooklyn, I'll go to Coney Island once a month. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> right, really, right. I'm from the, I'm from the housing projects in Sheepshead Bay. You know, we lived in a two bedroom. Mm. Then when grandma had to move in with us, we lived in a three bedroom. Mm. And you know what? Like, to me, Brooklyn's the greatest place in the world. Really but, but, and I believe it. I, I, but I'm seeing this crap now. And, you know, uh, let, let's, I guess we'll work backwards because I want to get to the cops. But this stuff that happened in Brownsville, to, a celebration. I, I mean, how do you get it in the, the people's minds in these neighborhoods? You're killing your own people, morons. What are you doing? No, so true, so true. And when you look at a celebration like Brownsville Old Timers Day, this has been around for over 50 years. Now, of course, anytime you get thousands of people together, you have minor scrapes where people would dispute and argue, but you never had anything of this magnitude. And to have a shooting, I think we need to really classify it in two ways. Number one, we had a couple of thousand people out there. Potentially two people got in the shooting. So the overwhelming number of people who were there enjoyed the evening. At the conclusion, they were singing, we are family. And they understood that what it meant to be part of Brownsville and what it meant to be part of that community. And we don't want to demonize the entire body of people who really want to live in a safe environment. Well, you bring up an excellent point. And I don't think it should demonize. I don't think it's fair. You know, I think one of the the worst things in our society, and we're all guilty of it at times, is stereotyping. Mm, so Any true. kind of so people. True. You so know, true. Be, but, you, you know, for example, uh, Mayor de Blasio, uh, and I'll tell you up front, I'm not a fan, uh, but we'll get into that as we go along. But Mayor de Blasio said, you know, this shooting doesn't define Brownsville. And it doesn't. Right. But at the same way, Mr. Mayor, you know, when something goes wrong with the police, it doesn't define the police. So unlike you, Mr. Borough President, you walk the walk, you talk the talk and walk the walk. And, and you know, our city is divided because some of the things that these politicians led by our mayor are saying and doing. And when you when you look at a city, it's so important to examine a city. And as we go on, you will really get my philosophy on governing. But when you look at a city, the dismantling of a city is not instant. It's the erosions of the basic foundational principles that we believe in. So when I took the train here earlier this morning and I saw a countless number of people walking through or jumping the turnstile, not paying their fare, uh, when you say instead of, holding them accountable, you basically say if they apologize or you give them a warning. No, that's not how you ensure a city of this size function. You cannot erode the basic principles that's associated with large number of people coming together following rules. Law and order, not unlawful and disorder. You'll destroy this city and it will really have a negative impact. Well, I'll give you an example when you talk about you know, what you grew up in, I grew up in, uh, and the Brooklyn, I'll say Brooklyn, but say the, the city now. If I would guess, and I don't know about your family background, but I would guess that if your family, your parents saw you throwing water on a cop mm. 
And the first of all, the cop would have smacked you in the head, but worse would have been the beating you got home when you had to face your parents. That's the way I was Without brought a doubt. up. But that doesn't exist now. No, no, it's so true. Without a doubt. And I say this over and over again. It was painful for me to see what happened. It was painful for me to see what what happened. And and you're right. You know, the biggest uh, fear I had was coming home to mother. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, yeah. if, if, if something like that happened. But it really goes to the foundation of how we have eroded uh, the belief and respecting uh, the officers that we hold. And, you know, that uniform that a police officer wears is is not a symbol of that individual. It's a symbol of the foundation of our city. Um, prosperity is rooted in public safety. You don't have public safety. You lose the prosperity of the city. And until we understand that and hold that as an important uh, narrative for this city, we're going to continue to decline in a manner um, that we're declining. I am extremely concerned on how this city is moving. There are indicators that a trained law enforcement eye could see to tell you we're moving in the wrong direction and we have to stop it. Well, you know, listen, I could, this is something, I can say this here because it's a podcast, it's not uh, radio. What really pissed me off, I, I, th- there was a, a, an editorial or something in the Times, 27 black leaders condemned, you know, the dousing of uh, the cops w- with the water. 27. You were the only elected official of the 27. Mm. And I'm saying to myself, <clears throat> Again, what the hell is happening with our city? And, and believe me, uh, Eric, I'm not blowing smoke up your hooses. I'm just telling you, like, why are you the only guy? I, I mean, that to me, every city official should be pissed off and in an outrage. And, and no, that's a, that's a great observation. Let me let me share this with you. Uh, I know I understand the role of agencies, and 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 one of the uh, things that I will be talking about as the year move forward is we have to really not get consumed with the enormity of the problems that we're seeing throughout the city, uh, housing, NYCHA, transportation, health, uh, all of these areas. It's about the agencies. And we learned that, that during the mid nineties, unfortunately I started police when crime was high, but fortunately I was part of the evolution of policing with a person like Jack Maple uh, and, and Bill Bratton. And we saw how you can turn around an agency. And if you turn around agencies in this city, you'll get the city operating correctly. If you don't, I don't care how much money you spend. We're wasting our tax dollars. We're one of the most heavily taxed states and cities. Yet we're not getting our money's worth because our agencies are dysfunctional. Our city is dysfunctional. And unfortunately, cities in America are dysfunctional. And we need to go to stop the dysfunctionality of them. Well, look, you started out as a regular cop. You went, became a sergeant, a lieutenant, a captain. I believe it was 22 years on the yes. force. 22 mm-hmm. years on the force. You're the distinguished uh, Brooklyn Borough president. Um, so you, you came up through the ranks. Uh, as a cop, I, like, I don't know what you were making, but you had that editorial it it blew my mind away that cops in New York City, in New York City, the biggest city, tough city, a lot of responsibility. After five years, cops are making 
$51,000. You got, you got cops, I believe it's out in Suffolk, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Eric. I believe some, they, they, they start around $100,000. Uh, you were talking about out on the West Coast, cities make, you know, they average something like $45,000 more than, what? Again, yes, no, uh, clear. And when you look at New York City, our neighboring counties, our, our offices make approximately thirty-two percent less an hour than the neighboring counties. Thirty-two percent less yes. an hour, right? But when you go to Suffolk and Nassau, you throw them in, it bounces, it pushes up to thirty-eight percent less an hour. So the numbers are, are dismal. And what we learned during the uh, various commissions that were fighting against police corruption, it was clearly indicated you have to p- pay your officers a respectable salary. That is one of the greatest deterrents to dealing with any form of corruption in law enforcement. You have to pay your people and make sure your people are held accountable, but you also give them the salary that allows them to do their job in a, in a respectful manner. Well, well speaking of, of doing their job, so so let me ask you this. Uh, be, because you lived it, you were, you know, an officer part of the police department for 22 years. Uh, people were pissed off about the dousing for a couple of reasons, just like they were pissed off about that punk on the subway getting in the face of those two young cops and, you know, suck my, you know, what, right, you right, know, it was right, re- right. People were, there were two folds, uh, two, two folds of thought there. One was, why didn't they just smack them in the mouth, arrest them, blah, 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 right away? The other one was people were pissed off because, um, you know, they just walked away. They didn't do anything. And, you know, part of me said, wow, I applaud them for the restraint that they had, but they've been placed in an awful situation. At the same point, I wanted them to grab them by the neck and punch them in the mouth. And, you know, that's how I felt. <laughs> but but you, you were a captain. So right. you tell me, did they act how they were supposed to act? Or, for example, with the dousing, should they arrested them right away? Here's his, his a concern. And I always applaud officers who display a high level of restraint. We've learned something in the police, police academy of don't get hooked. I, and I understand that. I got that. But at the same time, we ha- you have to send a strong message that you cannot dis- disrespect law and order. Those individuals who were one looking at the incident of pouring water, I'm calling it 85. I'm, that's that, that's the term for a backup. 85, and, right? In 85, and everyone that's at the scene that participated, they're getting arrested. And we'll sort it out at the precinct. If it means they're going to get summonses, there's going to be some type of action. So whoever's viewing the tape or whoever's seeing it on the street will know this is not a game. I'm not a person to play with when I'm here to serve and protect someone. You are not going to treat the uniform or the symbol of authority disrespectful. Person on the subway. I started my law enforcement career as a transit police officer. I rode alone. Those were two officers together. I rode by myself uh, during the mid-80s and 90s. Transit police officers, they rode by themselves. And trust me when I tell you, if you're on the car, if you're in the train car, and you're being disrespectful like he was, you're getting off the subway system, or you will be arrested for your action for being disorderly on the subway system. You'll be what we would call back then, you will get ejected. You are not going to stand on the 
on the car and tell me what I'm going to suck and what I'm not going to suck and be discourteous. That's not acceptable. Well, you know, that also takes me, you, you mentioned kind of something before uh, with, you know, you, you were coming here and people hopping over the, uh, the turnstiles. You know, they, they talk about behavior like this, decriminalization. I'm not looking to throw everybody in jail, but... You need to know there's, you know, there's actions, there's consequences to one's actions. And I think society in general across the board, that's not just in New York City. It's just gotten away. Yeah, no. And, and, and you find we saw this during September 11th also. And we're seeing it now. The further you get away from crises or tragedy, you tend to forget how the tragedy occurred in the first place. The further we get away from the the, the 90s, the early 90s, many of us believe the city was always this way. We believe Williamsburg was always a place you could walk down the street. Uh, East New York was never the murder capital of the country. That's our mindset. And when reality, that is how you slip back into the state of danger and despair. You you know, I went to Brooklyn Tech, Mm -hmm. okay? So I traveled on the bus, and I traveled on the subway every day. And when we went to Brooklyn Tech, they used to tell us if we were staying late, you know, be it an activity, whatever we were doing, if they were staying, we were staying late, don't be walking to DeKalb Avenue or the Atlantic uh, Atlantic Avenue uh, subway by yourself. Try and do it with, with a group or, you know, n- not by yourself. I go to Brooklyn, as I say a lot, I'll, I'll go to uh, BAM, mm-hmm. you know, Brooklyn Academy of Music. I'll see, you know, theater and stuff there. And I can walk around there. And I actually, to this day, my wife would tell you, I get choked up because mm-hmm. I see what this neighborhood has become. I mean, when I went to Tech, it was a war zone. It right. was like bombed out Beirut, Lebanon. You couldn't walk. The football team used to have to practice in the park. They didn't have their own field at the time. The quarterback was coming, walking back from practice. He got slashed across the forehead. It's it's gorgeous now. Right. It right. wasn't always like that. So what bothers me, it's like we have come a long way, but now are we going backwards? Without a doubt. And it it can alter the life of a person. Look at Carl Hasty, the Speaker of the Assembly. He started out at Brooklyn Tech. He got robbed on the first or second day on the train, and his mother said, you're no longer going back to Brooklyn. It changes the life of people. And so when you look at the communities there, as you stated, you were instructed walk in groups. But if you live there and you wanted a good citizens, the overwhelming number of good citizens there back during that time, you couldn't spend your whole life in groups. So your life was actually altered. Our children didn't play in Fort Greene Park freely. They didn't walk and enjoy the beauty of the area. Their lives were altered because of what crime is. Let me tell you about crime, what crime people fairly to understand. During the early 90s, crime was not only um, the public safety aspect of it. It was an economic inhibitor. In 1991, uh, we only had... uh, 29 million tourists that visit the city with only $10 billion in economic revenue. In uh, 2018, we had 65 million tourists that visit the city with $44 billion in revenue. Public safety is an economic stimulus package. If you don't have a safe city, no one wants to open a business, restaurant, go to the theaters, employ people, dishwashers, cooks, uh, tourist guides. Tourism is an economic uh, stimulus to our city. And so when we made the city safe, 
you also created an economic opportunities for people to also grow in the city and change those experiences where children can't live in groups. They must live their individual lives. You know, when I, uh, again, when I was at Brooklyn Tech, um, and the, the beauty of Brooklyn Tech, when I went, I went with like 7,000 boys. They didn't even have girls there yet. Mm-hmm. And, and they were all shapes, sizes, and colors. Black, white, blue, green, brown, yellow, whatever. And, you know, you got friendly with guys that became your buddies. And we would go to each other's neighborhoods and parties. And I remember if I was going to one in Bed-Stuy or I was going up in Harlem or they were coming to my neighborhood, we all had a deal like we would meet each other at the subway stop escort in. and escort them in, right, whether right. it was to a white right. neighborhood or black right. neighborhood. So true. And you, so am true. I right? Yep. So true. And it was fine. And, right. and people got along. It, it just, I'm also seeing, you, you know, um, I don't listen. I grew up at a time where, you know, my friend's parents, you know, marched on Washington. They were mm. part of the civil rights scene. And sometimes it scratch my head, say it's going backwards. I no, mean, it is. I mean, and I agree, and I agree with you. And your your uh, uh, mental memory down, uh, you know, memory lane is not being nostalgic. Is you know, you're not you're not saying because sometimes I know people think that when people reflect on what life was like, that you know you're just being nostalgic. No, you're you're pointing out, you know, how do we develop the full personhood of our children? And how do we create those long-lasting relationships with people, neighbors? Communities are changing. They are evolving. Uh, Bay Ridge is not the Bay Ridge of our childhood. Uh, Brownsville and Bensonhurst and and Best for Stuyvesant is not the same. Fort Greene. But what must remain is family. Family still must be important. And family must be at the cornerstone of the foundation of of this city and by ensuring that those opportunities we made, we can continue to make sure that our city is a place where you can raise healthy children and families. Part of the problem that I see, and I, I see it not just in New York City, I see it across the country. I see it, you know, in Washington. And, and that's, um, again, that's one of the things that, you know, watching you over the past few years, reading uh, some of the things you say and do, you can talk with somebody, Eric. Um, you're almost unique today to me. You can talk to somebody who you don't agree with. Right, you, you're right. a Democrat, but you can talk to a Republican. Right. We're getting away from that. Uh, so true. N- nobody so true. talks. I, I don't care if you're right or you're <laughs> well wrong. Said. Well you you got to be able to talk. <laughs> well, well, I, if well. I think you're an asshole, well, that's fine, but I still got to talk to you. I, I, you know what? I am afraid of what we're becoming as Americans. You have families that can't sit down during holidays now because they, they start talking about politics and they be, become so so emotional. The goal is to first, first seek to understand and then be understood. And there's nothing wrong with us disagreeing. You know, there's nothing wrong with us having a philosophical disagreement because how you come to your place of understanding is based on your life experiences. It's not based on my life experiences. My goal is to explain my life experiences to you so you can respect my life life experiences. And so we've lost that. I must prove you wrong 
so that I'm right. But that's exactly that. <laughs> bingo. That, <laughs> right, that, right, that, right. And right. you know what? We're going to be seeing all of that. Well, by the time that's with this podcast comes out, mm-hmm. we'll be, there'll be you know the um, debates will be over. Right. That's what you're going to watch. Right. I mean, how are our kids? Supposed to be giving examples when I'm watching a bunch of knuckleheads, and that's what I call them up on a stage, for lack of a better term, pissing on each other. Yes, You're supposed yes. to be part of the same party. Right, right, right. We And we don't realize that. There's one thing that uh, Obama uh, said that I thought was powerful. He said, this is intramural scrimmage. The name of the game is a jersey called uh, America. That's the jersey. And so once this scrimmage is over... Uh, now let's move to running a country. You cannot run a country every other year in fights with each other. When do you sit down and govern? If, if it's all about I must have one upmanship on you and I must constantly destroy you and I hope that you lose as a president that some people thought with Obama, I hope you lose as a president as some people are thinking with Trump, then the question is when does Team America win? Well, you, you just use the term team. Nobody seems to understand. We hear it in sports all the time. There is no I in team. Right. <laughs> well said. And everybody's well said. looking to, you know, uh, blow their own horn. Right. And and then you and then you are you're you're demonized because you actually believe we're supposed to live together. You're you're all of a sudden too soft because you actually believe that we're supposed to live together. If my neighbor is a Republican, and I'm a, I am a Democrat. When he leaves in the morning, he wants the same thing for his children that I want for my child. But people don't want to understand that from the, their, their own parties. It, it's terrible. It really I, is. I, I, I don't care if you, if you don't like the president of the United States, be it Donald Trump or Bush or Obama or anybody else, that's fine. That's right. what this country is about. Right. People have died for that right to feel that way. So, but, tr- so true. But so that true. doesn't mean... Everything in this country is wrong. Like, let's protest for the sake of protesting. Well, you know, and I always talk about how people were traumatized after the presidential election. I heard people say they were going to leave the country. They were going to leave the country. They would never live here to, uh, again. And I said that was not in the recent election. That was when Obama was elected. The same energy that you're hearing from some in the left is what you were hearing from those in the right. You know, so there's some days where you cheer and some days where you jeer. That's just life. You know, our greatest level of maturity is to be able to ride out those moments when your team is winning the, the ring and when your team loses the ring. It is part of life. But still move forward with the same principle. There's a reason we're the greatest country on the globe because those principles are going to let us and allow us to get through any turbulence. It is in our national anthem. Bombs burst in air. The flag is still there. Those uh, ancestors knew the bombs were not only those physical bombs in the sky. It was the bombs of the things you go through in life. 9-11, uh, low income, uh, unemployment. All of those are the bombs. But no matter what happens, you look up on the top of the building. Darn it, our flag is still there. We're going to be all right, you know, because we're made up of the best stuff on earth. We're Americans. Well, we'd all like to believe that. And... and uh I believe you believe it. I just wish more people w- would feel that way. You've also been very active. I, I want to, because I think it's important. Uh, you- you've been involved in something. Unfortunately, it's happening uh, in particular, quote unquote, the black community. Um, I think it was Bed-Stuy or Brownsville or, or both. Some some people 
are, are getting screwed or trying to get screwed out of their homes, and, and you've become active in that. You want to explain that? It's called the third-party transfer program. This is when the city uh, goes in and uh, takes the property of a homeowner because of a water bill, a tax, or some other uh, fee that's owed to the city. Now, imagine this for a moment. Uh, we all know what a home means to Americans. You know, there's a reason we say a, a man's home is his castle or a man or woman home is their castle. What is happening, the city goes in, you have a home that may be worth of one or two million dollars. You have a three thousand dollar water bill. They go they will go in, take your home from you because of that three thousand dollar water bill and give it to a developer and all in the mind of they're going to develop affordable housing in with your property. Instead of putting a lien on that house until the person sells it or someone buys it and you get your $3,000 or giving a person some of the equity that they have built up over the years. Some of the homeowners have had their home for 30 to 40 years, and yet the city is going in and taking their property. Then we have this uh, awesome uh, uh, case and several cases of foreclosures where people are going in doing deed fraud. They're going in prematurely having people lose their homes. So there's this onslaught of our, and our belief of homeowners losing their homes. You know what a home means to someone. It is unimaginable to me that I'm not going to be, I won't be able to turn over my home to my son so he can build that institutional wealth. And we want to fight to stop this from continuing to happen. This deed business, um, there was one family in particular it really bothers yeah mm-hmm. it, it, and you know and somebody can come it, it's almost they're conning you to talk it is, to you to, it is, uh, it is. To, to and the person you. in the Bethesda stuyvesant case uh the individual uh late at night after drinking someone gives him a a contract to sign and then we find out the person who said that he was a notary said he actually was, wasn't there and the person who uh, who took the home from the individual who are who was attempting to uh that person had a previous conviction of doing the same thing to someone someone else and so it should not be that easy to turn over or take someone's deed from them and that is what we're looking at legislatively we were able to get the person an attorney and now they're in court to try to save their home it, it, when i read that it was just terrible yeah, I, I mean you, i don't care black white blue or green <coughs> you don't want that to happen no you don't no you, you don't, don't especially, to especially, especially someone's I'm so, someone someone's home you know and i know we 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 we, we you know have a short period left no, we got, we got plenty of time. You're cooking. <laughs> you know, one 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 thing that is important to point out, uh, going back to what you what you indicated, even in Brooklyn Tech, you know, everyone is caught up in a controversy and a conversation about the SHSAT. Oh, should don't you get have the, I, Should you have the exam or not? But go back when you were at Tech. Remember how diverse Brooklyn Tech was. I am more proud of my high school diploma than I am of my college diploma. Mm. I am dead serious <laughs> about that. Right. Because you know what? It, I, I don't mean to interrupt right, you, right. No, no, but no. it taught me that the one thing we all had in common when we went to Tech, mm-hmm. every kid from Chinatown to Bed-Stuy to Sheepshead Bay, Coney Island, Harlem, the Bronx, whatever, none of our families had a pot to piss in. Right. They were all struggling, lower class, working class people. I don't remember... Forget two jobs. I don't remember when my father didn't have three jobs. Mm. That was almost the norm. And I remember 
doing my four hours of, of, of homework every night and this and that. But I also remembered, uh, Jesus, we all were in the same boat. And oh boy, I, I look at, you know, because I have no use for the uh, Carranza. Zero for the, you know, uh, Chancellor. Uh, you know, these... The brothers that I went to school with, they were having no problem getting thirteen and fourteen hundred on their SATs, mm. and they had no problems getting into the school. And I just think, well, you made the term before. You know all about agencies. Mm-hmm. The Department of Education, the, the agency that it stands for right now, is going straight backwards. It's, and now, and you know, he's talking about white privilege and this and that. These folks don't have white privilege. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about Please. the DOE for for a moment. But I want to I, I want to deal with you know uh, Brooklyn Tech and the diversity that it Please. was right then. So why aren't we asking ourselves what were, what were we doing back then that made it successful? And why aren't we repeating that? We had uh, pipelines. You know, you had in the lower grades, you actually those uh, young people who were able to uh, do the class assignments. They were actually in the pipeline so they can ensure all the way back in their lower grades. You can't wait until a child is in middle school, then all of a sudden expect them to catch up. We can give free uh, test prep to those who are economically challenged and give a free test prep. We should have people opt out of the testing. There's a lot of parents who they will have a child who's capable of learning information, but English may be a second language, and they don't know how to navigate the system. Because the system is extremely intimidating if you don't know how to navigate that system. Having parents opt out is the easier way to do it. But I want to focus on the DOE for a moment. As I was sharing with you earlier, the success of a city lies in the agencies. This is something that I really need New Yorkers to understand it doesn't matter how much money. We're one of the most heavily taxed cities in the country, yet our agencies continue to fail. And if you, we don't identify the dysfunctionality of our agencies, we're never going to solve the problem. So here's what our agencies are doing, just using the DOE as an example. The Department of Education is causing two crises. In our cities, we create the crises not only for the agencies that we are, but we also create it for other agencies. The DOE is creating two major crises in the city. One, they create our health crisis. The second, they create our uh, public safety crisis. Eighty percent of the people in Rikers Island don't have a high school diploma or equivalency diploma. One third of our 18 to 21 year olds lead be- read below a fifth grade reading level. Fifty percent of them have a learning disability. Thirty to 40 percent of them are dyslexic. If we educated children Upstream, we will not have a Rikers Island crisis downstream. So everyone is talking about closing the Rikers building. I said, let's close the pipeline that feeds Rikers. And let me tell you how they cause our, uh, our health care crisis. 75% of our children, 12-year-olds, 75, have early signs of heart disease. The food at, we, at what age? At 12 years old. One of the number one killers in America is heart disease, and 75% of our 12-year-olds, this is the first generation that's predicted not to outlive their parents. Many of those children, primary food source is in the Department of Education. We feed food to our children that the WHO has classified as being a type 1 carcinogen. No to cause ca- cancer. Only other type 1s that fall in that category, cigarette smoking and asbestos. 
And yet we feed our children food because we just focus on caloric consumption instead of nutritional consumption. So by the time our children go through the Department of Education, they have asthma, childhood, uh, childhood diabetes, obesity. So where the Department of Health is spending millions to fight childhood obesity, asthma, diabetes, the Department of Education is feeding the children the food that caused it in the first place. We create the crises. Then we have other agencies that respond to the crises that we, we, we create. That's dysfunctional, and we have to move from a dysfunctional government. Well, that, that, that the 12-year-olds, uh, I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty alarming. I haven't heard that number, but, you know, when you say this is the first group that we're saying should not outlive our parents, that's a terrible— It is. It, 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 it's, it is. It's frightening. It is. But it's our crises. This is, this is what's really frightening. As I started to look— into governmental agencies in the, in, the, in the many years of experience of, you know, from policing. And you start to really look at it. You see that our governmental agencies, the crisis we're living right now in this city is created by our agencies. We actually create our crises. And then we say to ourselves, oh, my God, what are we going to do about this crisis? We believe in governing downstream. I say, let's stop governing downstream. Let's govern upstreams and let's create a collaboration with our agencies. Try being a developer in this city and you have to move a tree and the Department of Building must speak with the Department of Parks. And if you get it done within two years, it'll be a, it'll be a redwood <laughs> by the time you get the permit. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and that is what's happening. Oh, go to NYCHA. NYCHA bids water towers installment. The plumbers low bid the job, and then they do a series of emergency repairs that triples the cost of the original job. Now, as a homeowner, you know there's a big difference between emergency repairs and proactive repairs. So people are benefiting from the dysfunctionality of our city is profitable. Spending $700 million to have a renewal school program that failed every year, but we continue to put the money into the program. Well, the, the school programs, I, I mean, to me, it, it's just disgraceful. You know, you, we were talking about, you were talking about Brooklyn Tech and, you know, my alma mater. When this whole business came out about the, the test being not fair and this and that, there was a wonderful um, editorial written by a girl Last year, she graduated this year. She was a junior at the time, and she wrote about it. She was a junior in Brooklyn Tech, and she was from Haiti. And she was writing, you know, you know, criticizing Carranza's, you know, philosophy. But she said, yeah, when, when I was in like the eighth grade or the seventh grade, I had a teacher come to me and, and thought that I had the capability of going to, you know, one of these specialized schools, to which the girl said, what are you talking about? She was not even aware that it existed. This teacher took a liking to her. So then she, and got her the proper tutoring or what have you, and she went to Brooklyn Tech. And the girl said, would I like seeing other black faces? Yeah, she said, but she also said, but... Everybody here got here on their merit. And the reason they got here is because they worked at it. The problem with, to me with the New York City, and you're talking about agencies, the problem to me, Eric, is, is that they're trying to hide the screw-ups that they're doing between kindergarten and, and you know, like the ninth grade. If, if you're not 
training them properly. If you're not teaching them properly, how can they get in? There was a woman, I believe her name is uh, Mona Davids. Mona Davids, I believe, is the head of the parents' union in the city. Yes. She's a black woman. Mm-hmm. She, she says, what are you doing? D- don't set the bar low for us. Set the bar high. Give us something to strive for. So true. And 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 what's so important is let's go where the science says. Here's something that we're looking at in Brooklyn, which is really astounding. A child's brain develops 90% between the ages of 0 to 3. 80%, I'm sorry, between the ages of 0 to 3. Mm-hmm. Just think of that, about, about that for the moment. 80% of their neuron growth, according to neurologists, uh, their brain grows uh, between the ages of 0 to 3. Yet our first contact officially with the child starts at 3 with 3K and 4 for pre-K. So by the time children start in our official learning process, they already lost 80% of their growth. What we're doing in Brooklyn, we're creating something called BK Basics, where we're showing parents, how do you participate in the growth of your child's brain? Not sitting down in front of a SpongeBob TV and just letting them listen to TV all day. We're empowering them by using simple methods. So by the time your child starts a a pre-k or 3k he's ready to be engaged like other communities and it's it's cost efficient it doesn't cost a lot of money the first 90 days of a child's brain is crucial but we're not even acknowledging that in the department of education that's a big mistake the horse is already out of the barn running down the road and we're finally trying to talk about fix the barn door no we need to do it at an earlier stage and this is what the science is saying Eric didn't make this up. The science is saying we're not educating, feeding, or nurturing children based on the science. And that is the wrong thing to do. I, I, I want to get back to something, Eric. We were talking about the cops before, and uh, this was very disturbing um, this past week. Seventh suicide from a police officer. Seven, and th- this was a 30-year-old um I think a transit officer, if I'm not mistaken, 30 years old in Staten Island. Uh, to me, that just tells you, I mean, I don't know if we're giving them the right counseling or, or it tells you about the stress on the job. It, it, I think it goes hand in hand with everything that we were talking about. Are they afraid to act? You know, am I going to get in trouble if I do this? You know, with that dousing that happened, you know, okay, my, some people might say it just looked like uh, water being put on the cops. I thought, I'm holding, folks, you can't see it, I'm holding my index finger and my thumb an inch apart. I thought that's how close you were to a flat-out disaster because let's say a cop went down, you know, tripped with the water going on and there's a crowd around them, a gun's coming out. A gun could go off, then somebody's dead. Then you know what the hell we have? Then we have a whole other situation. Well said, well said. And and you're right. Suicide is a real concern. Number one, police officers don't believe in the internal system of reporting when they're going through stress. And we approach uh, the city on a number of uh, levels. Uh, PTSD is real. Many people don't respect PTSD and what it means. And this is not some fancy term. It is the mind does not know the difference between actually going through an experience or thinking about the experience. Internally, your body goes through the same level of uh, corrosive action. 
And many of our officers suffer from PTSD. I suffered from PTSD when I left the police department. When you left? When I left. When I left. And because you do it every day in the action, running after bad guys, responding to jobs, going to someone being shot, being in the hospital, you're such on overdrive that you don't acknowledge that you're suffering because the noise really doesn't quiet down until you have the moment of reflection. Did you seek help? Yes, I did. You did? Yes, I did. Because I I understood that I lost Robert Venable, a very good friend of mine. He was shot and killed. (laughs) Every time I thought about Robert as a cop, my body relived that funeral. And it wasn't until I started doing research on my journey of reversing my diabetes that I started to look into, you know, how our bodies respond. And this science is just remarkable. And one of the ways of a, a, a... an inexpensive way of dealing with PTSD, and we have partnered with Ed Showman's from uh, the Civil Shields Foundations and other groups that are help, helping our military guys that could be useful to um, police officers, is meditation. Meditation has a proven scientific method of dealing with the stress that police officers go through. Because not only are they dealing with the stress of the job, they're not only are they dealing with um, being over-policed by their superiors, but some of them dealing with a, match, a, a marriage issues. You know, one of the highest level of divorce is law enforcement. They're dealing with issues with their children. They're dealing with um, payment issues. You, if you can't pay your mortgage, you know, so that stress is overwhelming. Teaching our officers meditation during in-service training and during their academy training, it's a skill they can take with them the rest of their lives. The science says that it is extremely successful and it will help save lives of police officers. We're hoping the commissioner embrace this concept and start implementing. Other states have already started having their officers participate in meditation before they start patrol. And it is remarkable of what it has done. So my final question is, how the hell do we get you to become mayor of New York City? <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious when I say that. We, uh, is that in your thinking? Yeah, we, we, it has long been uh, my belief that uh, my life has possessed the knowledge and skill to really uh, turn this city around. And this has been a 22-year journey, uh, believe it or not. When uh, Bill Bratton uh, made the decision that he was not going to run for mayor, uh, my political mentor, uh, uh, Bill Lynch, uh, told me 22 years ago, uh, Eric, If you, I told him that we could turn this city around. We cracked the code of crime. We could also crack the code on housing and health and some of the other areas in the city. And we learned that it's about the agencies. And I, when I shared that with Bill Lynch, he said, Eric, if that's what you want to do, here's the things you need to do. Number one, you have an associate's degree. Go back to school and get your bachelor's degree at a minimum. I went back, got my master's. It took me 14 years. I went at night. My son was born. I took one and two classes and I remained true to it. He said, you are now sergeant. You got to leave at least as a lieutenant. I became a captain instead. Studied that night and continued to move forward. He says, you need to get elected to be a state legislator so you can learn how to write laws and then become a congressman or a bar president. I'm now the bar president, the first African-American bar president in Brooklyn. He gave me the pathway. And so this is a 22-year journey. And most importantly, he told me, go into every community. Learn communities in a real, authentic way that they know you value them and you're going to have their best interests. And I've done that. And it's reflected in my campaign filing when I announced. I outraised everyone in the mayoral field. But the real story is the, is the diversity of the people who donated to me. I have more Asians 
more Korean, more Jewish, more African-American, more people from Uzbekistan, Pakistan. You know, I am the United Nations candidate. I understand what the city needs. My uh, earlier computer knowledge of being a person that has a rational approach to problem solving, my experience on the street as a police officer, my experience in Albany and in the largest borough in the city, there's a good moment for me to do so. I think I could win for only reason, one reason only. I just believe I'm so darn better than everybody else that's running. Well, you know what? I also believe that, too. <laughs> so, you, you know what? I'm going to end with how I uh, started with. If you if you want to know why you should vote for Eric Adams when the time comes, because he's a guy who doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. Eric, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank Always you. Good seeing you and, and we'll do it again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, and folks, that is a wrap on today. Once again, I'd like to thank all of you for getting a load of this. Now I'd like to get a load of you. Let me know your thoughts on today's conversation with Brooklyn Borough President uh, Eric Adams. You can contact me on Twitter at Russ Salzberg. You can always check out my website, uh, russsalzberg.com. My thanks today to um, Matt uh, Camara for taking care of business here uh, at the controls in place of crash. Who's on vacation to my OG podcast producer, Tim Einickel, Dave Labrosi, 77 WABC program director, his outstanding assistant, Matt Dahl. And last but certainly not least, you people out there, because without you people, I'd have nobody here to be talking to. So until next time, it is Ira Salzberg saying to all of you, bye bye. So long and farewell. Have yourselves a great week. room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.